This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello, I am Mark Borderstone, and welcome to The End of History, a monthly program presented by the Canterbury Socialist Society where we discuss the class struggle, contemporary unionism, economics and current affairs in order to promote working class history and socialist ideas as they apply to the 21st century. Kia ora koutou, ko Shannon Burns tōku ingoa, no mai hoki mai ki The End of History, a radio show slash podcast brought to you by the Canterbury Socialist Society. It's my absolute pleasure to be back again with another episode of the show. It feels like not much time has passed since I introduced the last episode, what with all the exciting CSS plans going on in the background, and I'll have more on those plans at the end of the show. In last month's episode, I spoke to Will Hansen, a PhD candidate and trustee at the Lesbian and Gay Archives of New Zealand, One of the themes of that conversation was remembrance, partly just to coincide with Anzac Day, which was happening last month. Since that episode, though, I've been thinking a lot about that topic, and in fact, I was reminded of a conversation that I had with another friend of the show, Martin Crick, about the importance of preserving oral histories, and especially the memories of some of the older members of the Canterbury Socialist Society. So with that in mind, I thought that this month I would sit down with Paul Pierce and Dennis O'Connor, two such members of the CSS, I hope they won't mind me saying. We didn't necessarily have a particular theme or topic to guide our conversation. I just wanted to hear about their experiences of the political left, their advice for those organising on the left, and the lessons that they have learnt. It was such a joy to see both Paul and Dennis nodding along to what each other had to say. I gather they've known each other for a while now. There were lots of laughs and a few key pieces of gossip shared after I had stopped recording. I'm going to get into my conversation with Paul and Dennis now. This month's episode won't have any of the normal resource reviews, but I think our conversation fully makes up for that. Both Paul and Dennis have selected a song to play as well, and I even have a third special song for you listeners at the end of the show. What I'm actually going to do is start with one song. It's the Ballad of Joe Hill by the American singer, actor, professional football player and activist Paul Robeson. The song was initially selected by Paul, but actually Dennis really wanted to hear it too, so we'll start with this one. After the song, you'll hear my conversation with Paul and Dennis and then another song, and then I'll be back with details of CSS events, ways to contact us and another wee special treat. Enjoy. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he Says I am standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I 
killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill. Went on to organize. Went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. It's there you find. Okay, well, what I'll do is I'll just start by getting you both to introduce yourself, please. Whoever wants to volunteer first can go first. Age before beauty. Where you go. Hello, I'm Dennis O'Connor. Just turned 80, soon to be 81. I was born in Timaru and spent uh, most of my life in Christchurch, apart from first 16 years and then... One year overseas a bit later, I'm the adoptive dad with my wife of two disabled daughters, uh, both in their 40s. I was a former parish priest in the Roman Catholic Church in Christchurch for six years. I'm a former industrial chaplain on behalf of Christian churches. Then I was an employment officer and then I was a projects advisor in which I had the great pleasure of funding left-wing groups as long as they provided people with a six-month job. Apart from uh, seminary education, which I sometimes call miseducation, <laughs> I have a degree in English, uh, literature uh, and dispute resolution and in speech. I didn't so realise we were both students of English literature, so that's a nice connection. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome, thank you, Dennis. My turn. And my name's Paul P.S. I'm of a similar vintage to Dennis, but I have a different uh, historical trajectory. I was born into a profoundly Protestant household, not quite <laughs> Orange Order Paisleyites, but um, profoundly anti Catholic, I'm afraid, comrade. <laughs> um, however, I escaped all ideological uh, superstitions of that kind. Uh, when I discovered Karl Marx, and that was on a demonstration, the first demonstration I went to from Featherston to Wellington 
against nuclear weapons, a campaign for nuclear disarmament, which I don't know why that appealed to me. It must have been some sense of the stupidity of it, uh, nuclear weapons, that is. And that introduced me to politics because there was a weird bunch of people on that march. There were various academic types. There was uh, an historian who ended up a right-winger in the Labour government of Roger the Rat, uh, and who wrote an appalling mishistory of the 1951 waterfront lockout. I should remember his name, but he is, one hopes, forgettable. (laughs) I spent a lot of time in the Labour Party, uh, initially in it totally. In fact, I was a parliamentary candidate in 1969 in Hurunui which is north of Christchurch, missed by a 1,000 votes. That was in the era of Norman Kirk, who was the last really old Labour leader. Eventually I became still in it, but not of it, and I left with Jim Anderton to form the new Labour Party, which mistakenly merged with various other rats and mice, like the social creditors and the Liberals, and the Greens, who used it in order to get into Parliament and then deserted it. Tells you a bit about middle-class loyalty. Now, Jim Anderton was an honest man, but he didn't pretend to be anything he wasn't. He was old-fashioned Labour. And he said, with absolute honesty, he didn't leave the Labour Party, it left him on the right. And he simply maintained his old position. Uh, Now, obviously, it wasn't good enough for some of us. And eventually, over... The alliance allying with the Labour Party when they decided to support the American invasion of Afghanistan. We said goodbye, Jim, but the alliance fell apart. And uh, although a lot of people in the alliance said, yes, we're fair dinkum, we're not just orientated toward Parliament, we also want to advocate the Parliament of the streets, that actually didn't happen. So that was my political trajectory. After the alliance, um, an old comrade uh, who came out of the Socialist Unity Party, a bloke called Warren Brewer, and I tried to kickstart a replacement for the alliance, which for some strange reason we called Hobgoblin. It didn't really get off the ground, and it wasn't until the likes of uh, Tom Rowd started um, the Socialist Society that things tended to come together again. Now... Those people are a generation behind us, at least, but they've got the right idea. You can be staunchly socialist without being sectarian and without capitulating to parliamentary uh, liberalism. Because while I was in the Labour Party, I did spend a number of years in a sect, a political sect called the Socialist Action League, uh, which warred with the Communist Party people who thought that God was alive and well and called Chairman Mao. Uh, (laughs) But that became a sect as well. And consequently, although a lot of good people did time in it, it died too. And now I think there's a handful of them left. I'm really interested that you've brought up these kind of issues of kind of broad church socialism versus particular factions with really particular or niche ideologies because I guess that's some of the stuff that I want to learn from you both. Thinking around the Canterbury Socialist Society and how we've been doing things for the last five or six years and what we might be able to learn from your experiences of different organisations, 
going forward. But Dennis, did you have anything that you wanted to respond to in terms of what Paul said? Do you want to talk about any of those things that you were also involved in or how did you actually meet? (laughs) (laughs) I firstly met Paul when I was an industrial chaplain at a training course and Paul came along. He was invited by our group to uh, give a union perspective and he gave us a few verbal lashes, well deserved I might say, about the role of the churches in history towards working people. And I was kind of half thrilled and half terrified. (laughs) But I'm very grateful to you, Paul, for that. But um, anyway, going back about me, how I got sort of political, my parents were political in their own ways. My mother came from a farming background of poor farmers, not not large stations or agribusiness, but uh, she knew injustice uh, when she saw it and, and dealt with it, including any injustice meted out by me to one of my siblings or, <laughs> from, <laughs> or from them to me. My father was an apprentice bike mechanic in the Depression and a young farm worker at home station, which was one of the big stations in South Canterbury, run by the Alworthies. My father double-handed this bike 10 miles out to home station for this farm work boy. And Mr Alworthy himself, I said, get that bike off that my property. No worker of mine has a bike. So anyway, my father had to double-hand it back to Timaru. I think that was a real uh, political awakening for him, which he told us. Mm. Another of his um, causes, and a very good one, were the conditions of seamen, especially on the overseas vessels which came into the port of Timaru. And then in the seminary, um, where I languished for seven years, training to be a priest, um, there was discussion about the worker-priest movement in France. Now, they were so effective in mobilising the workers into more militant unionism that the bosses complained to Rome and the worker-priest movement was suppressed. Anyway... I've never heard of this movement. For your time, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but interesting. Back then in the middle of the 1960s, when by some stroke of mad, insane genius, the, the Pope John the Twenty Third called an ecumenical council, the bishops, even though they may have been drunk, decided that it was a good thing for the worker-priests to resume, and they were allowed to resume. And uh, about 10 years later, I stayed with them, and uh, they were insurance agents and workers, building site workers, and very often union organisers or union delegates. And they had a very good political analysis. Uh, One young group, when they were in formation, they lived in flats, they, the Giscard d'Estaing was the, the president and they said to me to vote for Giscard is like pissing in the wind, you get it back in your face. So um, that was a, a good political awakening for me. And then uh, as a young priest in 1967-68, Anderson's Engineering, now closed, were making bomb casings for the Yanks to use in the Vietnam War 
and greater full eye, I rang and asked the bishop for permission to march against it with the students. And of course, the answer was no. I then, um, in the parish work, I tried to support young couples who were having, having a hard time. And I preached sermons encouraging people to follow their own conscience in their flaming family planning rather than the teachings of the church. Once again, I was a marked man and I was part of the National Association of Priests who, who tried, well, of course, looking back, tinkering around the edges, but to get a more relevant church. And uh, I didn't have much uh, economic analysis or party political interest, but I had a gut feeling that things in society for ordinary people and overseas were not right and uh, could be fixed. So I joined CAFKIN's Campaign Against Foreign Control in New Zealand, now known as Campaign Against Foreign Control in Aotearoa, and uh, took part in demonstrations at the US military base at uh, Christchurch International Airport, where it was thought that occasionally nuclear weapons were transited from Hawaii through to Australia. But I suppose... uh, a greater awakening was the bombing of Palestine in 2008. And so uh, I joined Justice for Palestine and uh, now Palestine Solidarity Network Aotearoa. And you're repping a very cool free Palestine T-shirt today. So. <laughs> yes. Well, that that is a theme which I try and practice in my own life. It's no use handing people a bunch of flowers while stealing their garden from them and forcing them out of their home. So uh, there's no peace without justice. So um, as far as party politics go, I did have a brief interest in the Labour Party, but uh, the northeast of Christchurch had a terrible MP, lazy MP called Larry Sutherland. And um, do you uh, remember this person? You're sort of smiling, Paul. <laughs> I have to confess, I played some role in putting him there. <laughs> was a total waste of space. Now deceased, I could tell you a couple of funny stories about Larry the Lamb, um, <laughs> perhaps later on if you have time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I forgive you, Paul, for trying to put him on the gilded throne. <laughs> but then I joined New Labour and Alliance, but I soon be- I began to become disillusioned uh, with Jim Anderton First time was when he went in the cavalcade to go and have dinner with Clinton at Wigram Air Base and I stood out at the gate with others crying shame, shame, while he and his wife drove in. And then, of course, um, as Paul said, Alliance lost its soul when Anderton supported Helen Clark and Labour in in the invasion of of, uh, Afghanistan. And then... uh, from belonging to the Alliance, I joined Keep Our Assets Canterbury, in which I'm still a member, and I'm delighted to see this asset here, the South Christchurch Library, being so well used, including by people like Paul and I. I also uh, believe in local justice around our suburb, and we've had a most dangerous stretch of Barrington Street outside Barrington Mall, and after five years of whining and was grizzling and wheedling, our little group was successful in getting the problem half fixed. I look forward to the day when the whole problem can be fixed. 
Uh, I've also felt strongly about West Papua, in which Paul is very active, but I don't have the time to really offer offer very much about that. So that's sort of uh, my background. And mm, Thank you, Dennis. And Paul, you're also involved in Keep Our Assets, Canterbury, is it? Yes, yep. yes. Um, for my sins, I'm now on the committee of CAFCA, which has quite a role, not an exclusive one by any means, but quite a role in Keep Our Assets, whose main spokesman, of course, is John Minto. And it's a live issue because some of those less than desirable people on the shitty council are are planning to flog off some of our assets, including the mayor and the puppet masters behind him like uh, MacDonald and Goff, and um, let them sue me if they don't like being named. For the record, I'll I'll just say that Dennis is doing a thumbs up and nodding at what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) My background is a bit different. My family were working class. Neither of my parents managed to get to high school, which didn't mean they were illiterate, but it meant that they didn't have the structure of more advanced learning behind them. Consequently, uh, my father in particular was quite religious. Now, that meant that although all their lives they were staunch Labour supporters, largely because the first Labour government saved them, basically. State advances, corporation... Everything, pensions, the whole lot, which has now been whittled away by successive Labour and national governments, of course. But they were socially quite conservative, which was not uncommon in the working class then and now, I suspect. And that was difficult to break out of, actually. So there were some subjects that we did not discuss. Uh, You never discussed uh, religion because there would be a row. (laughs) And sexual relations, you don't discuss that. In fact, when I joined the Labour Party at the tender age of 15, there was an election on and I heard a street speaker for the Labour Party who was the local candidate and I thought, he's making sense. Went home and told my parents, I've joined the Labour Party. You didn't do that, did you? Well, yes, you're Labour, aren't you? Yes, but you never let people know what your politics are or what your religion is. And the reason was, of course, because the amount of prejudice around in employment and in social relations in those days. But yeah. it's, it's you're so right, sorry yeah. to interrupt you, it's yeah. something that even I notice, not so much my parents, but definitely my grandparents and even some of my older friends, their parents are still very much of that kind of mindset that they feel uncomfortable talking about politics. That's it, exactly. Uh, anyway, my old man was a painter and paper hanger most of his life in the days when you had to hump around 100 weight kegs of white lead, and tint the paint by sight themselves. The fumes got into his, his guts, I suppose, and he had to pack that in and uh, spent the remainder of his working life as a taxi driver in the days when licences were hard to get and you had to queue to get a licence. And in the meantime, you worked on what they called thirds for the guy who owned the cab, which meant that he didn't want to work night, so you got the awful night shift. <laughs> it didn't help... Uh, and I never saw him because he was yeah. working nights. So that was my background. There were issues that came up in the course of my life that mattered a lot. The Vietnam War was, of course, front and centre. And uh, it proved to me that mass action to support something internationally can be very effective. And 
not just Matt's action here, but everywhere in the world, just about. Our government of the day, of course, involved itself in an American war, as is its habit, and uh, very often, of course, on the wrong side, as was the case in that circumstance. So having that international orientation and thinking that you can't sequester justice into one country, it has to be international, Mm. meant that things like Vietnam, South Africa, uh, the American uh, constraint on uh, Cuba, Palestine, all those issues, they're all the same really. And it's a question of big power and big money versus small people. I'm interested in, for both of you, it seems like a real significant thread in what radicalised you was imperialism, basically. Mm. War and imperialism, and very much looking outward from Aotearoa. Do you think that that is still as prominent on the left? Do you think, you know, I'm thinking about, obviously, you know, Palestine hasn't gone away. Um, Things like the situation in Ukraine, as you mentioned, West Papua and stuff like that. Are people, do you think people on the left are as outward looking as they should be? mobilising around that sort of stuff? Well, for me, it depends on what you define as people on the left. Yeah, well, (laughs) you can define it. (laughs) (laughs) If you read our mass media, they put the the Labour Party and the Greens and probably everything in between, the the top party, uh, all that, they put them on the left because they're not the standard basic ruling class party that National and ACT are. I don't define them as being left. I see them rather as people putting a nice smiley face on capitalism and trying to mitigate its worst excesses locally for opportunistic electoral reasons. So they're not left to me. Mm -hmm. A number of people in the Greens would be left, and I know one or two people in top that I would regard as as, as left. I'm not sure that Raf Manjeet would. (laughs) So I think the average citizen these days is bombarded with Americana, both culturally as well as politically, in the media, in all sorts of subtle little ways. If you look at um, the crosswords, if you look at quizzes and things like that, the proportion that's American-orientated. You watch our sports broadcasts and you get news about American football. Who in the... Who plays that? Here. Nobody, (laughs) you know? But everything Americana... They get a bit of bad weather and it's all over our news while thousands are dying for bad weather in Africa or somewhere and that gets a little bit. So I think that people are persuaded that the world is limited to what emanates from the bowels of America, frankly. And that's a shame. How many New Zealanders know about the, um, the American economic blockade on Cuba that's been there since about 1960? One in a hundred, maybe. How many people, if they knew about it, would think, well, that's a bit on the nose, isn't it? Probably 99 out of 100 would think that's a bit rich. Mm. But that's what happens. Did you want to respond to that as well, Dennis? Um, I certainly uh, feel very comfortable with what Paul said and I I, I totally agree. I think these days uh, the left, the real left, like um, our socialist group in Christchurch and around the country, must tap into the energy of young people who, with uh, righteous um, self-interest, are worried about climate change, what it's going to do to them and their children and grandchildren, and that includes uh, 
uh, transport facilities in the country, save rail, also reform in the universities, uh, professors droning, droning on either about irrelevancies or just trying to churn them out to get a job. And, yep. um, I have so, experience of that. <laughs> so I, I really think uh, we must open up our arms to them and encourage them. So I'm very heartened to see now that there is a much younger group than Paul and I who are now taking up the fight in keeping our assets uh, in Canterbury. So we are uh, so uh, pleased about that. And also um, it will spread. So uh, CSS must um, welcome them and encourage them. And the um, thing for CSS uh, will be the balance between education, which is terribly important. People need to know, they want to know, but they have to be able to relate it to their own experience and their own life and their own needs. But uh, as Paul said, it's a developing thing and it won't happen overnight. So I, I certainly don't see the, the political parties as the left, I would call them, to paraphrase Mao, the running dogs of the capitalist imperialists. And um, I think we've really got to, um, to encourage, challenge young people and to move on be, beyond their legitimate self-interest to see what's happening in the rest of the world. Yeah, and so I want to come back to this in just a sec. I've just thought of a question that I'd like to ask, though, before that. But I will come back to this question of balancing education and activism because that's something that the likes of Paul Hopkinson as well, some of the older folk in CSS, even Martin, we've had on the radio show before, that seems to be the real strong sense of advice or the desire from some of the older folk, and maybe some, again, some anxiety from people who are a bit younger about how to do that. Uh. So we'll talk about that in a sec, but before that I thought actually maybe I should ask you both what you think are the non-negotiable elements of leftism. What does it mean to be left? What do you believe in and value? If it's not the Labour Party, what is it? Well, putting aside organisations, and I think we have to because... You find good people in all sorts of organisations. I've even run across one or two good capitalists, believe it or not, in terms of their values otherwise. So values is a key word which has been abused by, I don't want to be pejorative, by liberal middle class people. But I think that the, the key thing can be summed up in three words which are not new and not English. In fact, they're French, liberté, Equality, fraternity, liberty, equality and fraternity. If you don't have freedom on the one hand, or liberty if you like, equality of at least opportunity and more often than not outcomes, which Tories of course ignore, and and a sense of relationship between people, a sense of solidarity if you like, or fraternity, then what the hell is society all about and why bother with it? Now, when it comes to how you get there... And that balance between education and activism, uh, we need to learn from our own history. For example, at the peak of the anti-Vietnam War agitation, when in Christchurch, which was a somewhat smaller city in those days, we had 10,000 people on the streets on two or three occasions from memory. And we thought, this is a start. We've got people here 
who have the right kind of values, the right kind of indignation at injustice and at war, we're on our way. Then they all disappeared when the war was over. To some extent, similar in the agitation against the uh, rugby union and their involvement with apartheid South Africa. Where did they all go? These people had values that they were prepared to put on the street, and now they might still have those values, but they're not organised, they are dispersed. Now that leads me to one of your suggestions as to what we think about the future. And uh, I'm afraid I rely on Antonio Gramsci's famous phrase, pessimism of the intellect, but optimism of the will. And, and that's why people like Dennis and I were still active. Otherwise, why would you bother? Mm. Uh, you have to think that somehow, somewhere, there will be uh, people, maybe uh, sparked off by an attitude or an incident like yet another American war or something, uh, who take up the cudgels again and develop from it, not, oh, well, we go back to things as they always have been, but develop some kind of um, integrated worldview. The Germans have some fancy long word for Weltungsschauung or something like that, <laughs> uh, which enables them to place their revulsion at injustice, local or international, into the context of the structure of society and what needs to be done to change it. Yep. Well put. Thank you. Do you agree with those sort of three fundamental values? I, I certainly do. Uh, and um, I can um, talk about a, a wonderful phrase which the capitalists can use but also the left can use is see what's going on, make a judgment about it and then do something about it. And I think that can apply to our socialist group and it can apply to all left groups because certainly the right wing are doing it uh, for different reasons and different motivations. I was a union delegate for the PSA in the late 1990s and uh, we were shafted by the PSA. In those days, they were real labour aristocrats, which in a nice word, is sleeping with the boss. And um, I remember when one of the union bosses, Joe Tonner, who's still oh. around Christchurch, wrote an article advocating sleeping with the bosses. I wrote an article published by the editor of the PSA Journal, Pat Martin, uh, rebutting this in nice tones. And Pat Martin was frog-marched to the lift in PSA House and that was the end of his career, except, I think, for a very handsome payout of members' dues to Pat from the mm. bosses of the union. So I do think a very important ingredient for today, and it applies to the young as well as older workers, is militant unionism. And I think that has to happen. Now, I was in Hong Kong for six weeks uh, in 1980, with a, with a group who are, uh, through the auspices of a very progressive church group, the Christian Conference of Asia, trying to understand the dynamics of Hong Kong, which was ruled by Mother England at the time. And the project for my colleague and I from New Zealand, another priest, we were to study uh, unions in Hong Kong at the time. And there were three kinds. There was pro-Beijing unions, 
there were pro-Taiwan unions and uh, militant unions. And um, the best unions for ordinary workers to belong to were the militant unions. And these church people who lived in Hong Kong, who we were with, had organised the mass transit union of all the underground trains. And they went for wages and conditions, absolutely, without, at that stage, any political uh, flavour or agenda. But that would have come, especially as uh, after Tiananmen Square, where they could see uh, what was going to happen to them. And then, of course, when Mother England sold them off to the Chinese in terms of the treaty of whatever in uh, 1998. So... I think they are very political now, and that would be one of the... I don't know for sure, but I think that is, and I think that would be why China has just come in and tried to crush the life out of uh, any activism or or hopes in, in the last four years. Mm. So um, so I think that that is very important, and maybe that's a um, task for CSS and, of course, for unions to, um, to, to get real militant unions mm. and ones where in the training of delegates and organisers they can use that see, judge, act principle. I mean, it can be used by the capitalists but so can uh, mm. so can uh, young people who are wanting to make sense of the world and to, to save enough money to buy a house, to get married, etc., etc., it does feel hard, but it is so, I think you're right, that it's vital that people feel empowered to be able to act because otherwise it's just sort of despair, isn't it? Yes. And if you feel like everyone else can act upon you but you can't really act upon mm. the world or, or things like that, so that's yeah. really the lesson through unionism in the workplace yes. or whatever, through mm. whatever we do, is yes. to empower people. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Are you interested in answering the question about what you think of general elections and what you think people should bear in mind as they brace themselves for all the electioneering that is to come over the next couple of months? Well, I think we should. We yep. might not be happy with our own answers. <laughs> <Agreed>. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, Paul, I'll let you start on that then. Well, I am conflicted. I'm a great believer in uh, people died for the right to vote, so you should vote. Even if you go to the polling booth and say no confidence with a lot of them, but I'm mindful of the fact that um, that kind of revulsion at the fact that we don't really have anything to vote for uh, as far as political parties are concerned. Nonetheless, there are some parties that mitigate the worst excesses of capital. So speaking unelectedly on behalf <laughs> of Mr Luxon's bottom feeders, I think you have to vote against national and ACT, which begs the question, so what do you vote for? Voting Labour is, I've expressed it as being a bit like voting for Mussolini because Hitler's worse. But nonetheless, if that's all you've got to do is to vote and there's nothing else for you effectively to do, well then I suppose you have to do it. The other thing is that we get two votes, don't we? So I think it's useful to assess the personal characteristics and attitudes and values, if you like, of the individual candidates. Mm. Within the ranks of the Labour Party, you've got crass opportunists through to people who are perhaps well-meaning, haven't been sufficiently suborned by being MPs, 
and who are trying to do their best but don't have an integrated view of the world. So you judge individual candidates and then you look at the policies of the various parties. For example, I'm very much attracted to the Maori Party's views on getting out of this five eyes thing where we lick America's boots all the time. And that's tempting. At the same time, I'm not in favour of a party which thinks that one's race rather than one's class is the overall important factor. Mm, mm. The Greens have some attractive bits. Well, some of them do. Some of them are mad as gum to his dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the same in the Labour Party. There's, some are better than others. So I think that each of us, well, for me, mm. I will look at the candidates in the constituency that I find myself in and at the policies of the different parties. And knowing who I will be against, I uh, will have some difficulty. When I'm depressed, I think, oh, I won't bloody bother. But you have to. Mm. I'm sorry, that's not an answer, but it, it it's most a certainly is an answer. <laughs> yep, and I think that's sort of I tend to agree. Dennis, what do you think? Well, I'm no admirer of Winston Churchill, not quite a mass murderer, <laughs> but um, he 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 did say uh, that there's only one thing worse than democracy, and that's dictatorship. So uh, I will hold my nose when it comes to. Uh, the election and probably vote Labour because uh, I don't intend to be a bottom feeder of Luxon. Yep. However, um, in a more serious vein, oh, I should say that I do live in an electorate where the uh, I've had recourse to uh, the uh, MP through her office, uh, that's uh, Wigram, when we've had trouble with uh, work and income, who, of course... Uh, doing what the government wants and rationing welfare. And uh, now they're rationing health, of course. So uh, they try their best for me with some success. For example, I hold a, uh, a, a written apology from uh, the Minister of Labour about uh, the dealings with our daughters, uh, Minister of Social Welfare. Mm. Anyway, I mustn't go into the tangent anymore, but I think that we've got to make the distinction in uh, our group, uh, Canterbury Social Society, between social democrats, which uh, of course uh, we see many of them enhancing and supporting and loving the capitalist system on which we labour increasingly, or democratic socialism. Now, as far as I know, there's really been no country that has run really well subject to Paul's knowledge, on democratic socialism. But I believe that we have to uh, work out for New Zealand what that means and try and put it into practice. And uh, it's not going to happen overnight. I won't see it in my day, I don't think. But uh, even in uh, groups, you know, if there can be democratic socialism Mm. and letting it grow and develop and, uh, of course... If we're all nuclear bombed, those of us left limping along (laughs) will have to go uh, to democratic socialism very quickly. So um, I think that's something that uh, we have to work towards. But um, yeah, I certainly will will vote. It's it's my right to vote, even though I'll be holding my nose. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. I guess last sort of question, do you have anything that you would like to add? Anything that you feel like we haven't 
properly covered or that you were particularly interested in talking about? Maybe you could summarise your um, sort of directives to listeners <laughs> or something? Well, one of the things that we haven't canvassed, and it's is probably a bit almost academic and ideological, is the question of the state. Mm. Everything that we've said so far orientates around the kind of political structure and state structure that we have now. Uh, you vote for this policy or that policy or this person or that person or this government or this alternative government. And in my opinion, it, these are managers of the state. Now, I'm not an anarchist, even in the traditional ideological sense. I mean, anarchy to me is capitalism. It's run riot, isn't I'm it? I'm so interested in hearing you say that because as you were just talking about that issue of the state, I'm aware that our next CSS event is a Anarchism for Dummies, which I'm the self-declared um, dummy that will be talking to two CSS anarchists. So I'm really, mm. that's one of, some of my questions are, yeah. let's talk about the state, let's talk about what you actually want to see. So yeah, sorry, that's a bit of a sidetrack, oh, no, but I'm well interested. Yeah, uh, because all that has, history has taught us is that you can modify capitalism it's not accidental that the first person to introduce pensions was not a uh, social democrat. It was uh, Otto von Bismarck who did it in Prussian Germany and not because he loved working people and the poor but in order to draw the sting out of any agitation that they might have for a better world. And capital will do that. They'll um, provide for uh, pensions. They'll erode them if they can. They'll provide for benefits for uh, sick people, for solo all sorts of stuff, as long as the essence of capital isn't attacked. And the state, of course, represents the ruling class in all its elements. So the state is not just the parliament. That's piddling. And it's not just the bureaucracy. It's all those forces. Uh, it's the parliament, it's the bureaucracy, it's the judiciary, it's the churches. Uh, Attila the hen, Maggie Thatcher... <laughs> described as there is no alternative. Mm. Well, there is, but you have to overthrow it. It's a dangerous word. Any final words from you, Dennis? Well, people look at me when I say I want democratic socialism and I'm sure in their mind they think of Cuba and Venezuela, etc., etc., and throw their hands up in horror. But I say we have to do it. We can learn from their mistakes and from their strengths, but we have to do it for ourselves, mm. not only personally, but for everybody, and uh, see that it spreads throughout the world. Now, that's a great macro hope, but uh, we must have hope. Otherwise, uh, we're going to into be a sloth of despond, as they say, and uh, anything will go and people will lose respect for each other and dog will eat dog. And uh, we don't want that. We have to employ our human nobility and, uh, and use our, our, our brains and our, uh, get in touch with our real feelings about things. And don't be told what to do by anybody. Work it out for ourselves. Yep, very well put. In Mount Joy Jail, one one day morning, 
the song Kevin Barry by the Wolf Tones and again that song was actually selected for you by both of my guests Paul and Dennis. Thank you so much Paul and Dennis for talking to me for the time you put into your answers. I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you don't feel too embarrassed listening back to this. I've not much time left and I do have that special treat song to share but just before I do there's one particular event that I would like to talk about. In fact, I mentioned it during my conversation with Paul and Dennis. 
on Wednesday the 14th of June at 6.30pm at Space Academy in St Asif Street, the CSS is hosting Anarchism for Dummies. The event follows the format first popularised by my colleague on the CSS executive, Courtney, who earlier this year was the self-proclaimed dummy in our first Socialism for Dummies event. This time around, it'll be me asking all of the questions of two anarchists from within the CSS, Tim and Leith. The event promises to be super accessible, lots of fun, and you can also submit questions before the event starts. If you head to the Canterbury Socialist Society public Facebook page, you'll see exactly how to do that. So again, that's the evening of Wednesday the 14th of June at 6.30pm at Space Academy. I look forward to seeing lots of people there. It's time at last for that treat that I mentioned. So unfortunately, I'll be away in Auckland, but this coming Saturday at 8 o'clock at Space Academy, the band Model Home are releasing a new single, and they're supported by the Wellington band Sports Dreams and also Pickle Darling. So Model Home features as its bassist our very own Tom Roud, and Lucas of Pickle Darling is also a CSS member. You are all warmly invited to attend that event, and again, if you head to Facebook, you'll be able to find out all of the details. Courtesy of Tom, here is the new Model Home single, Leaky Home Simulator 2035. I'll be back next month, and until then, kakite anō.
Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more, you can find us on Facebook as the Canterbury Socialist Society or visit our website at www.canterburysocialistsociety.org.nz. Thank you, and until next time, take care.